You're listening to Agency Dealmasters, brought to you by Bridge. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Serat Pederedler is the CEO of Hedgehog Lab. And man, have I got a treat for you. A digital product studio from Newcastle. You don't hear many international agencies starting out in the Northeast. You may have heard of one or two of their clients, Channel 4, Tesco, Autodesk, Deliveroo, Microsoft, just just go down the list. Surratt has just got an amazing story. Originally wanted to be a, a brain surgeon, as you do. He quits when he discovers computers in the mid-90s, to, much to his parents' dismay. Not many people would have seen how the world would be dominated by computers at that early time, but Surratt had that vision. You look at Hedgehog now and you think, easy, 100 people, offices all over the world, global clients, and you think, pretty straightforward, right? Not even close. Uh, This is just the definition of the 10-year overnight success that everyone talks about. We we talk about everything from his multiple pivots to find a business model that works, having to make sure that they win do-or-die pitches. This is a conversation all about failing, pivoting, and evolving your way to success. Just an absolute masterclass on all of those things. If you are interested in anything to do with entrepreneurship, agency growth, and technology, then this is the podcast for you. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Surat Pederedler. My name is Nathan Anibaba, and this is Agency Dealmasters. Agency Dealmasters is a series of conversations with world-class agency leaders building great agency businesses. I believe everyone belongs in the growth journey, and this show is dedicated to the stories and the lessons of ambitious agency builders of all types by examining their history, competitive advantage, and what makes them tick. Now, let's jump in. Surat Pediredler is the CEO of Hedgehog Lab. He has grown the company from three people in the northeast of England in 2011 to around 100 people globally today, with a major presence in the UK and US. Hedgehog Lab have been named number one globally for mobile app development with Analyst Clutch, and were named in the Financial Times' top 1,000 fastest growing European companies two years in a row. They have successfully raised private equity funding to scale their growth. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Sarat Pediredler, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Great to be on, Nathan. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to having you on the show for a very long time now. Your history and background is super fascinating. Let's let's start there. As a young person, you, you wanted to be a brain surgeon, of all things. You read a lot of medical books at a, as a very young person. How did your parents react when you told them that you wanted to give that all up to study this internet thing in 1996? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, being born uh, in India and the expectation that uh, traditionally Indian and Asian parents have, there's only kind of three or four careers you can take up. And when I was growing up, I had a huge passion when I was really little to be a doctor and, and it was kind of my parents' dream. So it was always kind of assumed through my through my first 15 years of existence that 
it was inevitably what I was going to be. It was it was a purpose that was close to my father's heart and 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 reputationally it's the thing you do in India. You know, you, you become a, a great doctor, a great engineer. So I think, you know, it's fair to say my parents were disappointed and surprised because because for a long time, until I was introduced to computers, you know, I only got into computers very late. I actually got my first computer when I was 16. So it wasn't something I ever grew up dreaming about. And and so, you know, given that I am normally so passionate about anything I put my mind to, um, and I'm very driven, I think it was quite a shock and a surprise to my parents that, you know, this was a dream I wanted to kind of fulfilled since I was four or five. And then here I was since I had my first computer and got really passionate about the internet and, and programming and technology that I had to take uh, one of those major pivots. Um, and to be honest, that's the story of my life, pivots in life and pivots in business. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it was surprising, but you know, I think as with anything, all's well that ends well. And I think as they saw how, I kind of threw myself into it and where I've come out at, um, I think, you know, they're, they're, they're fully on board now. I think they're convinced that they're happy they're convinced, Yeah, they're convinced it's the right choice. <laughs> Eventually. Um, so we're going to talk about all, all the pivots that you've made in your business because it's a fascinating journey that you've been on. But, you know, compared to neuroscience, running an agency must feel pretty easy. It, it, after all, it's not, it's not brain surgery, is it? Yeah, it's, it's funny because... Um, you think that because I think, you know, I mean, I remember training also when I was in pre-med school, I remember looking at a lot of brain surgery, you know, videos and stuff and reading about the brain. And I find it fascinating, right? So I say this to my team, actually dealing with people, which is what I do a lot, a lot of the time, my team and my clients, is actually a lot more challenging than dealing with the brain as a physical organ because, you know, when, when you're doing surgery or a neurosurgeon, yes, it's difficult and it takes decades of practice. Yeah. But once you've once you've mastered something, so for example, uh, there is a particular way you treat epilepsy, for example, right? You know, and in terms of in, in terms of physical surgery, it's pretty easy. You know, if you have to, for example, uh, clear a tumor, there's a tried and tested methodology. There is a way to do it. Exactly. So, so, so you know, I mean, I wasn't dealing with the brain in a, as a mental health professional. I was dealing with the brain, you know, as a physical. Uh, whereas now you have to deal with people and emotions and uh, difficult you clients, know. employees. Exactly. Yeah. There's no rule book for that. Exactly. There's no predictability. You know, I think one of the largely great things about medicine is there is a lot of predictability. You can diagnose things and you can symptoms. And yes, of course, there are rare, rare medical conditions and, you know, there are challenging bits. But I would say 90 to 95% of medicine is very much rule and, 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 you know, evidence-based. Whereas I think in agency world, there is no rule book. It's all, I feel like I'm making stuff up every day, which is, which is an entirely, so I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I think it might've been an easier life being a neurosurgeon. Agency Deal Masters is brought to you by Bridge, the growth focused podcast agency. We help ambitious agencies talk to the right brands through the power of podcasting generate leads, win new business, and increase reputation. Check out our clients' podcasts and find more resources to keep learning at bridgegrowth.org. Now, back to the show. 
So officially, you heard it here first. Running an agency is harder than being a neurosurgeon. Uh, never thought I'd hear that, but uh, but there you go. So so you set up Hedgehog Lab in May of 2007. You've got fantastic clients like Deliveroo, Axo Nobel, CMC Market, Santander, Channel 4, Mitsubishi. Just, just go down the list of some of the biggest companies in the world. Tell us the origin story of the agency and some of the most significant milestones along the way. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good place to start. I think it's worth noting that the agency wasn't my first business. I actually set up a business when I was younger. And so I got the entrepreneurial bug pretty young as soon as I went into university and I wasn't a great student because I was always obsessed about work and, and doing university. So when I got my first job, and I've only ever had one job in life, uh, when I moved up to Newcastle, when I, you know, when I got married to my wife, who's from up here, I kind of just walked into a job, you know, there was no plan because I never really wanted to be an employee. Uh, so while I was working there, you know, I was quite, I guess, restless and, you know, I really wanted to go back into entrepreneurism, do something for myself. And there was a great experience. I joined an agency called Think at that time, uh, which was kind of my first exposure to the agency world, really. And it was brilliant. You know, I think I was, you know, I can't remember exactly. We were a fairly small agency. I might have been employee number 12 or something like that. Very small. And that agency took off. I think in the space of a year, we went to like 40 people. We won this massive contract with the bank. And it was it was, it was wonderful. You know, the, the, the year that I was in, it was exciting. We were using technology to really change uh, some fundamentally important things like banking, etc. But... There was a huge challenge. I was 25, I think. I was quite young. I had a lot of ambition. I had a lot of passion. Uh, but the business looked at me as one of those young people that is, you know, has a lot of uh, creativity ideas, but probably not, I guess, if I use the word mature enough to be a director or someone senior. So I had aspirations to be much more senior in the business. And I kind of hit a glass ceiling which, you know, is, is a tough one because my CEO at that time, the founder of the business was the same age as me. Hmm. But, you know, I think there was just, the business was going through a transition phase. It, the business itself was growing up. Um, so it, it, it just didn't seem like, you know, we could, we, we could do anything with it. And I was getting incredibly frustrated with the agency business anyway. While it was really exciting, I didn't really like the business model where it was all about upselling. It was all about, you know, you had KPIs about how much more money you can get out of the client. And it didn't seem, and, and, and I come from a much more of a maker culture, right? I'm an engineer by trade and I pivoted from a neurosurgeon to an engineer. And, and for me, it was about delivering something quality. And actually, it wasn't about just rushing work out and trying to get the next bill out. It was all about, you know, doing something that mattered. So I got incredibly frustrated by that. And, and I was speaking to uh, Mark Foster, who's now my co-founder, who used to work with me at Think. And we said, it was funny because while I enjoyed that journey, we said, look, we're not going to do agency ever again. You know, that's it. I'm sick of agency. <laughs> uh, what, what we want to do is we, we'll, start, we'll start a SaaS company, you know, a, a digital product company. Um, and because we'd worked in financial services, we saw all these problems and the amount of money financial services firms were spending doing basic things like application forms and web forms. And in 2005, 2006, it was very expensive to create a credit card application form right on the web. So we were like, there is a better way to do this. So we came up with this brilliant idea where we said, first of all, we're not going to do agency. Um, we're going to form a company. And effectively, we left 
our company and set up Hedgehog Lab because we felt that there was a need. I think we 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 actually incorporated Hedgehog Lab in November two thousand and six. Although we didn't actually quit our jobs until you know May that year, and 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 we were convinced that we were onto this kind of billion dollar idea uh, of building a digital product for the financial services industry, uh, which would effectively you know be our future in the way we worked really, and so. That wasn't necessarily a pivot, but it was in a way because we, we went from being in the agency world to moving to what you would typically call the digital product and the SaaS world, which was kind of our first pivot, really, I guess, I guess the founding story of Hedgehog Lab. And and this is really, so I guess you had no idea what the preceding two years would look like in the financial services industry, 2008, the great collapse, economic meltdown as far as the banks are concerned. That's a great time to start a business focusing on the financial sector. Yeah, exactly, and and, and that that's the story of the pivot, right? So you know, so we, we we started a business. Like I said, I mean, it's funny because when we started the business, you know, you do some natural market validation, and I remember, and I won't mention who they are. They're a big four bank, and I remember going to this head of innovations, big four bank, pitching our business idea. We had some concepts and some wireframes and a prototype. And we said, look at this software. This is amazing. This 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 takes your time to market. Say, if you want to put a credit card application form together from three or four months to, you know, like three weeks. And the guy was blown away. And, you know, I remember him saying to me, and this was early, mid-2007 when we formed the company. And I remember him saying, you know what, you know, if you guys can, you know, deliver, a, a you know, a beat, an MVP of this, we'll try it out in our bank. And we were riding really high because that was, you know, the market validation was one of the top four banks in the UK was going to, de- you know, demo this. Okay, okay, they Huge. weren't going to roll. Yeah, yeah, they weren't going to roll it out across the world. But you know, even if I could get ten users, and we were looking to sell this software at about like hundred grand a license a year or something like that. Right. So, so we were really excited, and that, so two thousand seven passed, and I remember uh, kind of the penny dropped when. We finished, we worked really hard for six or seven months, you know, living on beans on toast, put all our savings into this, mm. uh, raised a really small amount of investment from uh, from the public sector uh, to really kind of fund, you know, because there was a lot of money in the Northeast flowing around in terms of public funding to really kind of push this business forward. Um, and I remember, you know, the run on Northern Rock happened and we still hadn't finished the product. And obviously the whole world was melting down and Lehman Brothers closed down and everything happened. But we were so young and naive. Mm. We didn't really think that would impact us. <laughs> it, 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 because Why would it? Yeah, because it was happening in New York, right? It was happening to somebody <laughs> else. I mean, we, we were based in Newcastle. Right. And around us, things were okay. You know, agencies yeah. were running fine. My, my, my ex-agency that I left was thriving. Yeah. Uh, everything was fine. And I think... As this was happening, so this big four bank at that time, I didn't realize, you know, the government was, you know, stuff was happening in the back background. Um, and I went back to the guy, you know, and I don't know why you took the meeting, to be honest, but I went back to the guy. We did the demonstration and you could see he was a bit pale and very disengaged. And I think it was a, it, it was kind of a pre, pre-arranged meeting. And I said, "Tada! This is amazing. You know, do you want to do you want to go for it? You know, we'll, we'll give you a discounted license for fifty grand a year. You know, like unlimited users, etc." And at the end of that, I remember he just said to me, "Sarath, have you seen what's happening in the wider world?" Are you watching the news? Yeah, you know. And he said, 
I will be crucified if I was to go out today and pay 50,000 pounds, 100,000 pounds for a piece of software. Mm. Uh, and he said, I'm sorry, you know, it's a great piece of software, but we're not spending a penny and not just a penny. And what I realized was a few weeks after that, the bank was nationalized by the government and people, you know, tens of thousands of people had lost their jobs. Nightmare. So we didn't realize that at the time we were naive. And then when the penny dropped, our first idea was, okay, we're going to try and sell it to other people. But nobody in the banking industry was buying stuff. Then we said, okay, can we pivot and maybe go to insurance? Nobody in the insurance industry was buying stuff, you know. They, 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 they were paying billions out in losses. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember going to a kind of this investor that had put in like 50 or 60K and I said, look, what options have we got? And I remember, you know, we, we basically looked at any industry. Can we, can we pitch it to the manufacturing industry? But the reality of the 2008 financial crisis was there was a recession and, you know, everything got hit really hard. So nobody was willing to spend 50,000, you know, £100,000 on a piece of software. Um, so we were really, really struggling. And, you know, like I said, you know, we had a business uh, and a piece of software that nobody would want to buy. To be honest, I mean, I thought that was the end of it. I thought this is where, you know, we've got to shut it and we've got to go back to jobs because, you know, we, 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 we exhausted all our savings. By the way, both of us had mortgages. Um, you know, we didn't have kids at this stage and we were thinking there's no way we can make this work. Um, and, and, and like I said, you know, I would love to say when that happened, the first pivot was very strategic and calculated, uh, but it wasn't at all. So while we were doing that, we had an ex-client that we worked with uh, when we were at Think. And the client just, you know, just as a, hey, let's catch up for a coffee. So I thought, like, what are we going to lose? You know, I mean, I, I've got nothing else to do. I'm not selling this piece of software. I'm trying to figure out. And I, I actually thought I might ask him for a job so I can go and, you know, <laughs> say to him, you know, like, have you got a job for me? Um, so he came in and he said, Surat, look, we're running a piece of, you know, uh, software project with this agency and it's going really, really bad. And and I basically, I delivered for this customer in my previous role and he trusted me a lot in terms of my capabilities. And he said, look, I just want you to come in, do a month's worth of consultancy um, and just, you know, steer it in the right direction. Um, and then that's it. And I remember saying to him, Mike, look, we're not in the business of uh, agency business. You know, we're in a product business. If you want to buy a piece of software, you know, we've got it for you. Um, but 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 I don't think we're in the agency business. And I remember Mike said to me, well, what if I cut your check for £20,000? You know, and this was for four weeks worth of work. And uh, to be honest, that was one of the first times, although I'd worked in an agency before, I was never on the commercial end of the business. I was more on the delivery and the engineering end. And me and Mark were just, I remember how after the meeting finished, I went and spoke to Mark and I was like, this is more money than we've, you know, obviously we weren't making any money in the startup phase for the last nine months. Sure. And and basically we depleted our savings and I said, we could basically, you know, between us 50-50, get 10 grand in the bank, give ourselves another, you know, nine or 10 months to survive. Um, so, so, you know, I think it's inevitable, but then that's when the penny dropped, when I realized someone was willing to pay a thousand pounds Per, per day for my time, which was, you know, 20 grand for a month. And, and we thought, actually, we have a lot of good skills that we can offer the market, uh, particularly around web development and what we do. I, I, and I remember having a couple of conversations and people are, oh, yeah, you know, we'd really like some software engineering support and we'd like some 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 website support. And that's that was the first pivot where we went, okay, we're not a financial services firm anymore, uh, a financial software firm anymore. We are uh, a web agency because... 
it, it was easy. It was convenient. You know, it was it was what we did. People were, you know, we were known for that, and and we were getting you know clients coming in and, and giving us work. Uh, there was no grand strategy, you know, on a big, hairy, audacious goal at that time. But but you know, we were making enough money. I think in the first year after we pivoted, in the nine months between us, we made ninety grand between both of us. Which, if you yeah, if you think of the context as entrepreneurs, we made nothing in the first nine to twelve months. That was a lot of money, right? And and so. So, so th- that was kind of the first pivot and the first kind of, you know, uh, I guess, lucky change. And there's some validation there from the marketplace that you're doing the right thing and you're going the, in the right direction. So then talk us through how you went from that point to then subsequently building Hedgehog Lab and where you are today. What, what were the major milestones along the way? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think one of the interesting things about Hedgehog Lab was Although we didn't, you know, we pivoted in terms of what we do from financial services software to, to web agency, to mobile agency, to effectively what we call ourselves a digital product studio now, our culture and our values have always been the same. So, for example, our original purpose was create a place that empowers people to do the best work of their life. And that, that applied whether you were, you were a digital product company, whether you're an agency, etc., I find it interesting because a lot of you know people said, why don't you just shut down the company and start a new company and, and you know do like a pet red agency or something like that? And, and for us, there was also a values-based piece that we'd set up. And the values and the culture framework that exist in Hedgehog Lab today are the same ones me and Mark wrote before we founded the company in November 2006. So that's an important piece, right? So a lot of what we do right now applies no matter what we're doing in business. You know, next year we could be doing augmented reality, VR, and the values would still apply. So when we pivoted to a web agency, uh, we went through a, a kind of a pretty, you know, kind of a, I guess, you know, what you would call as a lifestyle business journey. Um, we got comfortable. People were paying us money. Uh, you know, we were a fairly, you know, we had good reputation, you know, grew the company to five or six people. Um, and, and that took a couple of years and, you know, we, 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 revenues grew slowly, etc. And in 2010, unfortunately, I was faced with, the, you know, a critical illness and I was out of the business for about nine months. Um, and I think we had about six people by then. So, you know, very organic, nothing deliberate. Um, you know, out of the business for nine months. And one of the big things that happened was, you know, when I came back, there was another big pivot point in the organization where we were a web agency and there was a race to the bottom in web agencies, certainly in the, in the microcosm of the Northeast market. And so I'd come back from illness. Thankfully, I got better. I got treatment. I came back from illness I was having kind of this life moment of, you know, what do I do with my life? You know, where do I go from here? Do I double down or do I just go and find a job? Um, and the business has suffered, right? I mean, I was a key person. I was a salesperson. I was the project manager, et cetera. And I really struggled. So when 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 I, when I came through that, that, that nine months, and again, there was a pivotal moment where we were running out of cash. I mean, of course, I mean, I can't remember. We had like, a month's worth of cash or something like that, like literally to pay the six people, etc. Um, and we had this scenario where we had a, a project bid that came in. And we knew that, for example, you know, where I think it was like 40,000 pounds or something like that. When we estimated, we, we did the pitch and we did all the, you know, creative and, and, and the commercials. But we were like, guys, we desperately need to win this work. We haven't won a project in four months. 
So we need to do something to just keep us afloat. So we said, we're going to bid half price. We're going to go 40,000 pounds. We're going to bid 20,000 pounds. Um, and that should win us the work. Um, so waited for the call, got a call from the client. Surat, you know, we were blown away by your proposal. Yours was the best proposal by far, the most creative proposal. Uh, you know, all the superlatives are, but we went with somebody else that agreed to do it for uh, £10,000 or something like oh, that. Half of what you were offering. Yeah, yeah. But, and that's when the penny dropped. I remember, I remember going out to the, to the cafe with Mark that afternoon and saying, well, we've got two choices here because, you know, realistically, we can't run out of cash and then tell the guys, the team, that, hey, we run out of cash, so we can't pay you wages, so we need to let let the team know. Um, and also, I have a feeling that we're not, you know, we weren't getting any leads. There were no opportunities. You know, everybody was doing web development. I have a feeling that if we continue down this path, it's a race to the bottom. You know, anybody in a bedroom can build a website, a great website for 5K. Um, so we, we've been talking about, you know, doing mobile and pivoting to this mobile agency for a while um, because I was quite fascinated. I was one of the first people in queue in Newcastle for an iPhone, in, in, in you know, when it launched in 2007, eight. So we said, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, if we continue the way we're going, we've got to shut down in a month anyway. You know, we've got to tell the guys the truth. You know, we don't have cash. We're going to run out of cash. Uh, so we had we made that decision at the cafe that we're going to pivot. We've been thinking about this idea of becoming a mobile first agency. Um, you know, it's unique. It's not something that's a race to the bottom. So we went in, spoke to the team, and quite rightly, some of the team said, look, this is not a risk we can take. We, we're not experts in mobile. We don't know how to do mobile development, mobile designs. So effectively, it, this was, I think, in 2011, early 2011, uh, you know, three of the teams said, look, we're going to move on. We've got mortgages, houses, families, and we've got to move on. And it was quite amicable. And there was one kid who was a, like a young graduate who, who had no responsibilities, etc. He said, ah, what the heck, if I don't get paid for six months, let's just do it. Let's just go ahead and see what happens. And that's when we decided to pivot into a mobile agency and really kind of go through that journey really in 2011. Fascinating, fascinating. And then how did the business take off? from that point? It, it, it didn't actually. So one of the things I quickly realized why there was no mobile agencies, certainly in the Northeast, was there was no demand for mobile, right? So the iPhone had been around for four years, but the mobile apps market wasn't really that mature. There were a couple of good agencies in London like Somo and Moobaloo and App Business that were just kicking off. Uh, but it was the wild west of mobile really. This was the time when you still had the calling beer apps and stuff like that. It wasn't really uh, matured mobile and, and people were foraying into it. And the problem is we were based in Newcastle and there was no market for mobile apps in Newcastle. There weren't many businesses in Newcastle in the Northeast willing to invest, you know, six figures, seven figures in mobile apps. There were customers in London doing it. Uh, but in our local market, there was nobody. And the other thing we realized is we had no market position, right? Hedgehog Lab was not known outside the confines of the Newcastle gates and, uh, you know, uh, so it was really tough going from 2011 to 2013. We, we really struggled because, you know, it wasn't, now it seems in retrospect the most obvious thing to pivot to mobile, but it was really, really difficult. I remember the first meeting I had for a mobile app for somebody that, that I got introduced to my network in the Northeast. We went in, we pitched about this amazing e-commerce mobile app we're going to do and, you know, how we, how we can build the product catalog, etc. I ended the meeting and I said, oh, this is great. I think we can do this for you. I'm going to get a proposal together. 
what's the budget you got? And he said, I've got 500 pounds. Will that, will that be enough? <laughs> and, and then kind of the penny dropped that nobody in the Northeast had the budgets to be able to build mobile apps. So it was, it was really tough in 2011. Really interesting. So from software to web development to mobile apps to digital experience agency, talk us through the value proposition there. Who are your clients? What problem are you solving for them? And then talk us through kind of how you made that pivot. So I think we call ourselves a digital product studio right now. And the pivot was natural, really. I think it was, this one was more of an evolution rather than a pivot. So we started off doing only mobile apps for a long time. 2013 was a big year for us in terms of recognition. We built Jamie's 15-Minute Meals, which was one of the most popular apps in 2013. Uh, You know, obviously, you know, no credit to us. It's all credit to Jamie Oliver for for event on TV. Talked about the app, and it, and we won the Drum Design Award for it. And it was just you know it just completely blew up. But as we continued to do mobile only, and as we came to 2015, 2016 in in our journey, customers started saying, "Hey guys, you know you build a mobile app for us." But increasingly, customers were starting to think omni-channel and multi-channel. So they'd go, "Well, why can't you build a web app? You know, a web version of it or a web admin." Of course, we could, you know, we never focused on it. It was never, you know, a go-to-market strategy. And what we said is, like, we can't just be mobile anymore. we got to be what we call as digital product. We help our customers create. So if you look at our website, it says, we help our customers, you know, design, build, and launch digital products. Because what we realized is what we learned through mobile, which is becoming the dominant platform, is we can build great digital products and we can, you know, we can design them. We can help them take an idea to say, oh, look, I want to build the Uber, you know, whatever. And we can take it from concept to building it, launching it and maintaining it. So the proposition we give to our customers is we are kind of, if if you want to launch a new digital product and you're looking for anything from the journey, from strategy to design, to build, to potentially running the the, the digital product in the future, we are kind of the go-to agency. So we call ourselves currently a digital product studio. And the evolution was natural because the most popular type of digital products customers were building were mobile apps, but then you had other things that you had to interface with it, like a cloud platform or a web platform. So we evolved into it rather than pivoted because we started doing web apps again to complement mobile apps. Then we started doing cloud work. Then we started doing engineering, you know, DevOps work. And then we started doing what we call as whole digital products where you might have a mobile app, a web app, a cloud infrastructure, the whole turnkey solution which was more of an evolution gradually from 2013 to 2022 rather than a kind of big bang pivot really. And as you look towards the future, if you look towards cloud AI, VR, AR, what does the next evolution of Hedgehog Lab look like? So the current evolution we're going through. So first of all, I think this business has longevity. And the reason why is Given their digital transformation and, you know, we've heard all the stories in COVID about, you know, like you've seen the little social media graphic, who enabled your digital transformation, CEO, CEO, or COVID. And the reality is there is no business now that doesn't think ourselves as a digital business. Media businesses are digital businesses. Manufacturing businesses are digital businesses. So if you look at where the market is now, we think there's at least another decade, even more in in exactly what we're doing without evolving what we do. However, I'm a restless person. I have to evolve or die. You know, I don't don't want to stay still. 
So the big next evolution for us is in the past, we were we were very much makers, right? We were people, if you wanted things making, you came to us. What we're looking to evolve the organization about, and we've been doing this over the last year and a half successfully, is more move towards the more strategic consulting piece. So we, you know, if you think about the life cycle of how a customer goes to a digital transformation, there is the initial piece around the strategy, the ideation, et cetera. And then somebody decides we need to build an app and they, they come to us with an app. We are actually working with customers to even define the need for an app or a digital product. What is the landscape of the, like I said, you know, mentioned digital experience. What is the customer experience that they want to deliver? What are the touch points, the service design elements? So, you know, in, in digital agency parlance, we're moving up the chain to more of the C-suite to have those strategic conversations rather than the conversation of that a CTO or a CIO would have is, I need an agency to build an app and you are the people. Now customers are saying, what should I do? You know, how should I increase my sales? How should I increase my customer experience, et cetera? And that's the evolution. We're not there yet. You know, I would still classify if you came to us in 2021, I would still have said we're largely, you know, mobile developers or app builders. So, you know, that's kind of what we know. I think for the next five years, I think the real opportunity for Hedgehog Lab is to move strategic and answer the why and the what rather than just the how of digital products, really. So then talk us through how the skill set of the team must evolve and change to meet that new reality. I'm sure you must have gone on a tremendous journey from three people to 100 people anyway. Maybe talk us through kind of the main insights that you've experienced kind of growing a team so rapidly from... 2013 to where we are today and then how must the skill set of the organization the mindset of the organization the tools and the talent change in order to meet this new reality massively and that's really interesting we talk about pivots in terms of the positioning in the market there was also a pivot in terms of operating model and capabilities so initially hedgehog lab was purely an engineering organization right we you you would come to us for iOS and Android developers and that's it. We couldn't do anything. We wouldn't manage projects for you. We wouldn't do product strategy. We couldn't even design stuff for you initially. As the, the company evolved, I quickly realized that without design and owning the design. So you know, prior to that, we were being given design. Somebody else would do designs, and we'd just be required to build the app. And what we realized is we were building some pretty crap apps that other people had designed that weren't looking great. And I was embarrassed to put these in my portfolio, thinking like, like this is not great. So we said, we have to own that narrative. We have to design. And, and what we realized is in marketing and the way agencies do case study, how your product looks is as important as what it does and how it works. It could be the best written, best quality product, but if it looks, you know, pants, nobody wants to engage with it. And nobody's certainly going to buy from you because your product has a bad screen. So the first thing we did in, in, in 2013, 2014, and that's when we won the design award with Jamie is we, we brought a head of design in place, uh, you know, recruited an ex-friend of mine who, who just finished off with his agency. Um, and, and so design became the first discipline. And so as an organization, we had to evolve from this engineering culture and engineers who all had their headphones on and didn't want to speak to each other and worked remotely to a design and engineering culture where designers wanted the music on in the background, they wanted to be in the whiteboards, the capabilities were different. Then as we evolved that in about 2016, 2017, we brought in the product, you know, because we look at pro, you know digital products, that's when we evolved to digital products. We started realizing that we're not just a mobile app studio anymore, we're doing digital products. 
but we don't have any product managers or, or people to manage that product lifecycle. So we created a product capability, which again came with a new culture. You know, this was a lot more about thinking about, you know, stuff like marketing and product uh, uh, propositions and, 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 and evaluating products and all of that stuff that comes with it. So we brought in, you know, the, the, the product side of it, which was, which was really exciting. And again, with that came a different culture. And the last piece was, you know, more commercial capabilities. In the first five or six years of Edge Labs growth, we were lucky in that we didn't really have to have, I mean, until even last year, with the exception of a small phase when we had an external head of sales, I was predominantly doing sales as a CEO and predominantly doing marketing. So we were quite fortunate that the way we did our go-to-market strategy, we built a great engine to generate leads through digital marketing and you know SEO and stuff like that. And we built a great avenue via word of mouth to bring in customers. So we never really had a sales team. And that's something as we crossed the 5 million pound threshold mark, we realized you're not going to grow word of mouth you know, consistently. And, and I think one of the big pivots in that sense in terms of operating model was when we took private equity investment because we had to almost, we were forced to professionalize the business, which I think was a good thing. Um, and so, yeah, the operating model changed completely and, and these new capabilities we brought in keep adding to the stack. And to your first question, sorry, to return back to what are the capabilities we need to go on that journey, uh, we need to bring more consulting and strategic capabilities. I don't think we're there yet. Um, and it's a different mindset, right? Because we, we always used to joke about consultants in the past because we, we are people who can build stuff, right? So we always talk about consultants, you know, well, they, they'll sell you, you know, they'll sell you, your, they'll take your own watch and tell you your time and sell you. Sure. And we always used to joke about that, like, you know, these consultants don't actually do anything. They just come in and do workshops, et cetera. Right. And so we always pride ourselves in, in being stuff who build stuff, you know, like the, like the mechanics or the engineers. But I think it's, it's about changing that mindset of the organization that actually consultants have a role to play. You know, for example, we were historically not great at facilitating workshops or running discoveries and, you know, really kind of bringing that customer journey into the piece. So it's about bringing those capabilities and actually also bringing some of the existing team on that journey so they're comfortable doing those things. So you, you talk about taking private equity. Let's Let's talk a little bit about that because this is something historically a lot of agencies have shied away from or have been reluctant to go down the private equity route. Maybe talk a little bit about why agencies have been reluctant and then why did you make the decision to go down the PE route? It's really interesting why, I, I don't necessarily know if agencies have been reluctant and in the past they have. And I guess it depends on what you're comparing with in the digital transformation and the digital product space, Almost all my peers have either some sort of PE funding or, or, or raised capital, etc. So the people I consider my peers and competitors are all funded because, you know, whether you talk about Iron Digital, whether you talk about, uh, you know, uh, kid, uh, App Business or Kinan Carter that got acquired, you know, there's a lot of digital transformation or, or DCSL down in South Coast. In the, in the circles I'm dealing with, funding is a big thing. As a wider digital agency business, absolutely not. You know, if you think about uh, some of the Beamer members and some of the wider digital agency, but, but in, in the space that we are digital product, I don't think it's that, it's that uncommon. Although in 2017, it was very uncommon. Um, in 2017, it was a very interesting one. I don't think we actively went out to the market to get private equity. We were actually quoted by the private equity firm. Maven were opening an office in Newcastle. 
Um, and they wanted a high-profile flagship investment in the Northeast. They were pretty excited about the mobile space and the app space, which quite rightly was in 2017, was a very hot commodity. You know, I think it was the years when Mubalu had just sold to IPG, uh, app business had just sold to Kenan Carter, and just apps were the hot thing, right? And every day there was an article about apps. So it was, it was funny because we didn't actually run a process. Typically, the way you would do corporate finances You'd have to corporate finance people. You got to the market, like, you know, you'd speak to 10 or 15 private equity firms, do a roadshow, and you'd effectively go, right, we're going to choose one, two, and three and do some due diligence and take an investment. We didn't actually do that. I mean, we didn't do it. What we really wanted actually initially was, was a small working capital loan because we'd expanded into the U.S. in 2016. And we felt like we wanted to grow the U.S. So we were just looking for about, like, I think, a quarter of a million pounds. The challenge for agencies is banks are not willing to lend agencies any money because we don't actually have physical security. We, we're not willing to, you know, put a house in, on a security, etc. So actually, one of the ironies is the agency funding model is broken because traditional lenders don't lend to agencies very well. I mean, if you're an agency with like a five million pounds on the balance sheet, maybe HSBC might give you some money. But that's very rare, you know. I know I know very few agencies that can grow on the basis of uh, of good working capital. And so while we were looking for this, it so happened that we had investors who said, "Look, you know, I mean, I remember when 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 we got the investment, the investment round that they announced for us was oversubscribed, and they had to lock it because there were so many people willing to put money in. They were like, nah, you know, we have to stop it at a million pounds because like this is just, it's not an infinite funding round. Right. Um, so so it was very much, uh, you know, them approaching us rather than us actively going to, to find investment really. As you think about capital expenditure, CapEx, maybe talk a little bit about what, what capital expenditure for the company looks like. That's a really good question. I would say most of our CapEx, I mean, to be honest, our CapEx is quite low, really. I think when we opened in the US, there was a bit of CapEx. I think, you know, right now we're very pragmatic about CapEx. We've rethought, for example, how we would do offices. So we don't spend a lot on offices, although, you know, we're coming to a time where we want to rethink what the office is for and how we want to kind of structure it. So there might be a bit of CapEx in terms of creating interactive working space. But we try to limit capital expenditure. When I think about big spend, other than expanding into international territories, we try to, you know, the great thing about an agency is 80% of your cost is in people, right? Which is effectively fixed costs and operating expenditure. So we try to invest more in people rather than CapEx. If I'm honest, I don't think, I don't think we've got any big CapEx projects coming up uh, short of potentially any geographical territory expansions. But at this moment, we've got no ambition beyond what we're doing. I know that culture and people is is hugely important to you, and I know that you're a student of Jim Collins, uh, good to great, and I think we geeked out about a few of his books the last time that the last time we spoke. I'm a huge fan of uh, Beyond Entrepreneurship and Great by Choice, and you know just go down the list of amazing books by Jim Collins. How has his thinking about culture, great people? Um, strategy influence the way that you think about growing Hedgehog? Well, I mean, the Hedgehog concept, as we talked about in our brief chat, was the whole name Hedgehog Lab came from Jim Collins's Hedgehog concept. Love it. But this absolute, you know, everything, everything Jim, so you talk about level five leadership, I'm a huge, huge, huge proponent of level five leadership. 
I was never happy just having a good company. I wanted a great company. And the reason Jim Collins appealed to me was he was telling you the roadmap of good to great, right? If you if you want to be a good company, do so and so. But if you want to be a great company, do so and so. So I tried to implement a lot of his toolkits, whether it's big, hairy, hairy, audacious goals, whether it's the flywheel. But, you know, it's just like little soundbites and frameworks that you can encapsulate for an entrepreneur. Because I think a lot of the time, business books end up in broad theory. And then you read it and you go like, what can I do here? And there's a lot of theory about be the leader or, you know, like, you know, be brave. What does that mean? And, and what I love about Jim is this frameworks you can apply and things that you can measure yourself by to say, are we being a hedgehog company? Are we showing level five leadership? Do we have big, hairy, audacious goals? And that's what I think really kind of spoke to me. Absolutely love that. We're fast running out of time. So I can't let you go without asking our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. First question tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, I mean, how long have we got? But keep it short. Uh, the first experience was when I failed my first business. And what I learned was uh, engineering expertise isn't sufficient. You need to understand sales and marketing to make a business succeed. Just building a great product is not good enough if you're not able to, you know, market it and, and reach the customers. So my learning was how critical sales and marketing was for a business to succeed. Tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced the way that you think about growth, strategy, culture. Yeah. Really good question. So that, that's a big regret of mine. When I was young, I was quite arrogant, so I didn't really have mentors. So the best way I can talk about mentors is, and I know, you know, it's, it's a cliche is, there were people like Simon Sinek and Jim Collins, the people who were writing Seth. Seth Gordon massively influenced my marketing approach in terms of the purple cows and, uh, you know, how to think about marketing and almost simplifying marketing. So, um, you know, I didn't have any direct mentors. A lot of my mentors were books and, and people who wrote those books, really. So, yeah, so that that was how I learned. And my regret is, and my advice to people is get some mentors pretty early in your life. We've spoken about Jim Collins and Simon Sinek. Tell us about some of your other favorite books, business-related, non-business-related, whatever. Yeah, listen, I mean, again, 30 seconds of a short time is not enough for this. I'm an avid book reader. <laughs> so if I, had, if I had to pick the top, top three books that have influenced the way I think, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, yep. you know, Every single thing in there is like speaks to me, you know, win-win, be proactive, all of that stuff. Obviously, Good to Great by Jim Collins. Uh, Start with the Why by Simon Sinek. What a great book on leadership and where, mm. where you know, where, where you're coming from. And this isn't necessarily a business book, but I read a lot of psychology books. And there's a book that, that really changed my life as a parent. Uh, it's a book called The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and You're Glad You Would Have Read. Philippa Perry. Philippa Perry, exactly. Brilliant book. Um, it's transformational, right? I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, I grew up with a lot of issues, anxiety, stress, etc. And my mental health over the last 10 years and the way I manage my kids has been completely different yeah. to how I grew up. And yeah, Philippa Perry, so there you go. Uh, what's the most interesting thing that people don't know about your background? To be honest, I mean, I publicize this a lot, but like I said, I think, you know, Intuitively, people don't know that I, I originally trained to be a brain surgeon. I mean, I guess if you're on my LinkedIn, you know, but a lot of people are surprised by that. Um, 
they also don't know because, you know, seeing me now sitting in a seat for a long time that I used to be quite a sportsman. I used to be the state uh, uh, ping pong table tennis champion. I used to play basketball. Um, and people don't think that because, I, like I said, I pretty much do a desk job now for the last 15, 20 years. Uh, but, but I used to be quite good at sports, actually. When I'm going through difficult patches, I remind myself of inspirational quotes from people that I admire to get me through, like Viktor Frankl's From Stimulus to Response, There's Choice, From the Magic of Big Thinking, How Big We Think Determines our, the Size of Our Accomplishment, or Action Cures Fear. Do you have any of those things that you fall back on in tough times? Yeah, uh, there's one that I almost, it's a mantra really, and weirdly, I'm not religious, right? So I'm, I'm an atheist. But the serenity prayer, or at least the line which goes, uh, I don't say God because I don't technically believe in God, but the, I say, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference, oh, which brilliant. has been which has been my defining way of being a, a stoic mm. lifestyle, really. Mm. There's so much wisdom in those few simple words. Um, and you're, you're a stoic as well, so... so Ryan Holiday, are you a fan of Ryan Holiday? And, the Obstacle and is the Way, obs- indeed, yeah. Brilliant book, fantastic work. Um, okay, last couple, we're going to have to get you back on the show just to talk about books. Um, what advice would you give to a young person or a millennial who wants to start their career in a marketing agency? So I think one of the, one of the most important things, and I'm actually, I'm actually living this now, is get mentored. So I mentor a lot of people. I mentor people in the business development side, in the agency worlds, et cetera. And my biggest mistake that was defined by my, you know, mid twenties and early thirties was I was too arrogant to think I needed mentors or that, you know, or, or even like, I didn't know, I didn't know that I need mentors. So that would be my advice. Find mentors have, I use the word of this personal advisory board, create a personal advisory board. So it isn't just one mentor. You might have somebody that's a life coach. You might have somebody that's a business coach. You might have somebody that is going in the direction that you want. That's a sales or marketing specialist. So one of the best things I've done over the last five years is build myself a personal advisory board. And I think it's having mentors and having that personal advisory board is super important. And my final question, Sarat, what is it you know about growing digital agencies today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? I think the most obvious one is uh, the impact of powerful marketing. I think a lot of digital agencies don't invest as much time and effort and money in their own marketing as they do for their clients. But, you know, I've managed to grow, like I said, without a big sales team, this business from zero to like seven and a half, eight million. And I think that's the power of good marketing. Great place to end. Sarat, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Nathan. Great to be on. We have been speaking with Surat Pedirelda. He is currently the CEO of Hedgehog Lab. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 160 such conversations we've had with world-class leaders in the agency space. Head over to agencydealmasters.com and sign up to our weekly newsletter for exclusive subscriber-only content not shared on the main feed. Follow us on LinkedIn and send me a message there if you want to get in touch. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Tyler Baller is our booker. Christoph Boaszczek is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Alibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. You were listening to Agency Dealmasters, brought to you by Bridge, the growth-focused podcast agency.